Welcome to this bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. I'm Layla McNeil, one of the regular hosts of the podcast and one of the editors-in-chief of Lady Science Magazine. This is the second installment of our bonus episode series in which I chat with practicing women scientists from a variety of fields about how feminism shapes the work that they do. For this episode, Emma Baki will join me to talk about the emergence of feminist practice within the field of anthropology, its impact within the field, and how feminist anthropology is applied to analysis of gender-based violence. And before we dive in, I do want to give a content warning. Um, We will be talking about sexual and domestic violence. So without further ado, here we go. Emma Louise Baki is a PhD student at George Washington University, where she studies medical anthropology. In addition to her fieldwork on trauma, gender-based violence, and sexual and reproductive health, Emma also works as a consultant in international development and global health. In her spare time, Emma manages and writes for The Geek Anthropologist and serves as an advocate for survivors of sexual violence with collective action for safe spaces. So, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, So, we actually met at, I would guess almost three years ago, at the Pop Culture Conference in Seattle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were both networking and I think a little bit nervous about how to begin the process of networking a room full of people that we didn't know. Yeah, it one of those like awkward academic mixers where they have like the free wine and cheese and yeah, I think the extent of our networking cuz I was there with Anna uh, was you, and then we like left. So <laughs> yeah, well, it was a wonderful confluence of serendipity where I, you two, both seemed um, cool and approachable, and thankfully <laughs> there was a fair amount of overlap between our work. Yes, um, and since then, I guess like it was a successful networking yeah. <laughs> experience because after that we did um, an interview with Geek Anthropologist, and then since then you've written like three. Mm-hmm. three pieces for our monthly issues and now here we are so I mean as networking experiences at an academic conference can go I think that was pretty good yeah absolutely thank you pop culture association for bringing us together <laughs> yes um okay so let's let's jump in um why don't you kind of start off with talking a little bit about um we don't have to spend too much time on going into what anthropology is, but if you could just explain a little bit about what anthropology is and then um, what specifically is feminist anthropology. Uh, Absolutely. So anthropology, um, I think broadly, is a sort of social science research approach um, that uses a lot of qualitative and sometimes quantitative methods Um, the go-to that I always use is an elevator pitch, um, is the definition that was provided by Ruth Benedict, which is that anthropology is the study of human difference, um, and sort of making space for those differences. Um, I think what anthropology used to study in the past had a lot more to do with sort of these processes of exotification and the other and trying to um, create some kind of rationale out of sort of who the other was in spaces that were considered to be very separate from what we think of in terms of sort of Western culture. Um, But uh, I would not say that anthropology is 
quite as invested in this idea of exotification, I think in part because of the post-colonial turn and in part uh, because of what feminist anthropology did in terms of reorienting the kinds of work that we were doing and the kinds of people that we were working with. Um, And so I guess in answer to your second question, feminist anthropology created a very different approach to who was uh, qualified to be an anthropologist. So early anthropology was very much run by um, sort of a white male vanguard. Um, And then feminist anthropologists not only intervened to say that women should be a central part of this uh, methodological praxis, but that there were entire swaths of populations, particularly women in these communities that weren't being talked to. Um, There was this assumption that as long as you had talked to men in a particular community, you'd sort of gotten the entire picture of sort of what their political and economic system was. Um, And it took a new vanguard of feminist anthropologists to really be critical of that. Um, And within that, there was also a very big turn in terms of more participatory approaches to research. Um, And I think a more nuanced understanding of the way that gender, sexuality, and power plays into the study of culture. And one of the pieces that you wrote for us, um, you talked about how the male anthropologists, like you said, would talk to the men of the group that they were studying. And the perspective that they would then present as research was filtered through like two different kinds of gendered gazes and perspectives. And um, I think that that's always something really important to highlight when we're talking about feminist science and what feminist science is, um, is that scientists approach their work through different kinds of lenses. And when you only have kind of the dominant or privileged or the more powerful Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing the work, that um, the results that they present at the end are going to be limited and exclusive. and to me, that seems obvious, but I, when we're talking about scientific fields and this um, veneer of objectivity, um, that understanding of how people approach work with different lenses doesn't, it's hard to break through that veneer of objectivity and, and understanding yeah. <laughs> that type of thing. Well, and I think it also then, if you have these multiple filtration systems where you are making certain assumptions in terms of sort of a more androcentric ap- approach, you're also then reinforcing those narratives. And so the more you have um, sort of a very particular male-oriented framework, the more you have... Um, social science literature that is sort of privileging a very particular kind of voice and a very particular kind of experience. And then there is a sort of symbolic violence or symbolic power that is being enacted through that process. Right. Um, So can you go into a little bit more detail about how um, those early women anthropologists like Zora Neale Hurston and um, Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead um, how their their approach to the work and their methods um, differed and kind of changed the way anthropology was done. Um, 
I'll talk about Margaret Mead, especially because part of what she was doing was making anthropology a little bit more public. So the sort of oeuvre of public anthropology is something that we've been talking about a lot. I think it's something that a lot of scientific fields are talking about in terms of making their research a little bit more approachable. Um, But um, Margaret Mead... um, was working in the South Pacific and was very interested in the sort of normative roles of gender and sexuality that had been ascribed to her as a woman and also as a scholar um, and was was interested in um, where this comes from. So there was this very, uh, there was this period of time when there was sort of seen, there was this dichotomy between nature and culture. So there was this idea that, um, uh, there are certain sort of inbred biological traits of gender, which is something that obviously has been complicated. Um, but the time that she was conducting her work, she wanted to get a little bit more perspective of why is it that women in communities always have to sort of perform these domestic roles? Why is it that um, male sexual a- access and prowess tends to be privileged over women? Um, and so when she was working in the South Pacific, she was actually very much complicating these narratives and talking one-on-one with the women um, as well as the men. Um, And I think part of this is also the positionality of the female anthropologist. Um, One of the things that she brought is male anthropologists probably would not have been able to have access to these female populations because of their gender, because of ideas about um, whether or not it would have even been appropriate to talk to the women and girls in those communities. Um, and so even though anthropology is sort of seen as a softer science because um, you're going into the field and using a little bit more qualitative methods, it also creates a lot more flexibility in terms of the people that you're able to talk to. Um, and so as she was conducting research, she was sort of revealing sort of the hidden transcripts of this alternative way of thinking about gender and sexuality in these communities. Um, And so she wrote Coming of Age in Samoa, um, but she brought back her research to the United States and was really, was using it as a platform to say, look, we don't, these ideas of what we think about in terms of what it means to be a proper woman, what the gender roles are for men and women, they don't need to be this rigid. None of this is, is natural or inherent or biologically defined. In fact, it's cultural. And she was using that in part to sort of stage what was in part sort of part of a feminist cultural revolution about our ideas about gender roles, not necessarily being so inherent to our biology. So Coming of Age in Samoa was published in the 19, in 1928. Um, so it was still fairly early. Um, but I would say that she continued to publish and, and work in, um, and work on issues of gender and sexuality throughout the 1900s. But I think she sort of precipitated this move that, um, I think, uh, was a little bit more emergent in the 60s and 70s during more second wave feminism when um, feminists were approaching social scholars like anthropologists to get a better sense of sort of the historicity of these gender roles. Um, And so part of what Margaret Mead was doing was creating um, this problematization as sort of the backbone of modern anthropology. So let's talk a little bit about, because your interest 
one of your interests anyway, is looking at um, gender-based violence um, in your research. So um, that was another piece that you wrote for us as well, was about feminist anthropology and gender-based violence. Um, so what, what does anthropology look at when you're looking at gender-based violence? Yeah. Um... I mean, the short answer is everything. Um, right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I would say that there are a few strands that anthropologists tend to draw upon when analyzing gender-based violence. One is sort of the structural violence approach um, that was popularized by Paul Farmer, who is a medical anthropologist. Um, and structural violence is sort of looking at the different institutions and frameworks that basically create conditions of marginalization. Um, so issues like poverty, um, political demobilization, precarious housing, uh, availability of jobs. So all of the ways in which there are sort of these multiple intersecting vulnerabilities that then lead to conditions where agency is somewhat restricted. And in so doing, how do women and men potentially have to participate in practices that are not always necessarily safe, um, but are conducted as a form of survival. So structural violence is sort of a very big theoretical framework. Um, and then another big feminist anthropologist named Nancy Shepard Hughes has written a lot about sort of the continuum of normalized violence and the ways in which gender-based violence oftentimes is seen as this very spectacular thing. So when we're talking about rape, it's something that is often somewhat sensationalized. Um, but it is very rarely the only form of violence that a person is experiencing in relation to their gender. So thinking about all the different forms of violences that are feeding into um, alternative forms of uh, emotional violence, physical violence, um, symbolic violence, um, and then looking also at sort of hidden sites of violence. Um, so thinking about the ways in which, for instance, in the United States, um, you couldn't legally rape your wife because if you had married someone, then um, you were basically considered to always have sexual access to their bodies. And so this was considered to be something that was private. It wasn't under the purview of the government and was therefore hidden or obscured. And so like, what are the forms of violence that are not necessarily noticed or are taken for granted? And I think for a very long time, and even still today, gender-based violence is something that was potentially taken for granted, especially because there were other forms of violence that were seen as maybe being... Um, a little bit more interesting or even less politically fraught. Yeah, that's interesting because um, that was something that we dealt a lot with um, when I was working at a domestic violence shelter, um, was um, looking at how the structural violences that different women experienced and how those were influenced the interpersonal relationship between um, them and their partner. And so you can't, when you look at something like domestic violence, um, you can't just look at it all through the same definition of domestic violence because the tools that an abuser uses is different depending on their socioeconomic um, condition. Um, it's based also on the way that um, um, gay couples 
engage in gender-based violence and people don't think of that as gender-based violence because they're of the same sex or of the same gender but sometimes the dominant partner will pull on the larger systemic gender discrimination that we have and wield that against their partner um and so i find that i now i never realized that the tools and education that we were using at the shelter um kind of come from this work that anthropologists have been doing. I find that incredibly fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a sort of recursive process that's happening. It was something that I sort of similarly hadn't realized until I was actually attending a um, bystander intervention training. Um, and even though the training itself wasn't sort of framed in a super theoretical way, there were a lot of, um, maybe not necessarily always anthropological, but sort of social science approaches. So there was a certain amount of sort of Michel Foucault um, that was infused in it. We were talking a lot about the ways in which um, manifestations of gender might invite um, certain um, attention that uh, such such as harassment, and there was a lot of uh, dialogue about the way that gender is a performance, which is very much drawing upon Judith Butler. Um, and I think that part of what feminist scholars have been trying to do that is potentially different than um, other domains is drawing upon the experiential, recognizing that your own personal experience can be a form of theory in and of itself and also working interdisciplinarily. So not simply drawing upon sort of one particular discipline, but looking at what other communities and other scholars are doing and incorporating that into your practice as well. One of the things that you talked about in that piece on uh, sexual and gender-based violence that you wrote for us is that um, anthropologists in this regard have done a bad job of turning their own tools on themselves. Um, <laughs> and have, in a way, seen themselves as exempt of perpetuating the same violence that they're studying in their work. So, and I know that in anthropology, you in that field have had your own kind of recent instance of something like this happening. So um, if you could kind of talk about that disconnect between um, practitioners not turning their own tools on themselves and the thing that they study. And then kind of, if you want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in your field. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is sort of this sense that if you are conversant in these theories of power, um, and most of what, um, contemporary anthropological research works on are instances of abuse and oppression and discrimination and really investigating all of the different thresholds and nodes through which those operate and really being exceptionally critical of institutions, especially institutions that sort of claim to be working on behalf of certain kinds of people while potentially oppressing others. There's this assumption that because you're so suffused in this scholarship and you're so, you know, this, this theory back and forth that therefore you could never be a perpetrator of these same forms of violence that we study. Um, 
And unfortunately, that's simply not the case. Um, just because you have a certain theoretical orientation doesn't mean that you are actually able to practice it, um, which is interesting because one of anthropology's central modalities is this concept of self-reflexivity, of doing that self-investigative work to figure out what are my biases, where am I coming from, what are the ideologies that I'm bringing into the field, and doing my best to be critical of those. Um, and so there has still sort of been this assumption of the anthropologist as sort of um, not necessarily the activist, because there's a lot of fraught politics about activist anthropology, but that um, anthropologists are sort of doing the good work, um, but then not sort of investigating um, within their own disciplines, how they might be perpetuating these very same forms of injustice. Um, and this especially came to a head this past summer um, when a very famous and popular journal called How, um, there were uh, a bunch of former editors published an article um, on another blog called Footnotes, basically detailing the ways in which the editor-in-chief had committed um, sexual harassment, financial exploitation, abuse, um, basically enumerating a number of ways in which um, scholars were feeling exploited physically, emotionally, sexually, um, and then a wave of, of other sort of senior editors resigned and apologized, um, and a bunch of junior scholars in the field basically calling out those senior scholars for saying, how could you not have known that this was happening? Um, and so even though the epicenter of the debate was this uh, editor-in-chief of this journal, How, it ended up actually initiating a much larger conversation about Me Too and anthropology and the ways in which um, anthropology has sort of yet to reckon with um, the ways in which we ask people to go into the field to conduct field work for long periods of time, but we don't do any sort of safety planning or protocols for people who are going to be in vulnerable situations, especially if they're women or queer or scholars of color um, or don't have enough money to cover basic safety planning, getting around their sites. Um, the fact that um, senior scholars in the field may actually be perpetrating sexual harassment and assault within their discipline and uh, junior scholars don't feel like they can speak out because it would jeopardize their position at the school. It would prevent them from getting jobs. Um, the ways in which uh, also anthropology was supposed to have gone through a post-colonial turn that was supposed to be more open to um, scholars of color and indigeneity and a feminist praxis. Um, and in actuality, is still sort of centered on this, this male body. Um, and so it has basically initiated a lot of conversations about how anthropology, both in the field and in our classrooms, can address the fact that violence is not only happening to anthropologists, but is also being perpetrated by anthropologists. Yeah. So how did um, kind of the larger field respond to this? Um, well, it's still going on. It's sort of a slow motion disaster. Um, 
<laughs> a lot of it has been unfolding on Twitter um, and also on popular blogs, which I think is interesting in terms of thinking about open access and the platforms yeah. that are available to um, sort of precarious scholars who want to publish things anonymously. Um, I think probably unsurprisingly, a lot of senior scholars have either feigned ignorance or said that they um, don't actually think that this is a problem that potentially we're overreacting. And then a lot of junior scholars or scholars of color um, have written a number of rebuttals, basically talking about the fact that we should not be surprised by this. Uh, so there was one article that was written in another blog called Allegra Lab called Shocked, Not Surprised, um, where the author uh, argues that um, this is something that we should have seen coming from a mile away. Um, and is also evidence of the fact that even though this sort of feminist anthropology revolution of the 70s and 80s was supposed to have fundamentally changed the way that we thought about safety in the field, the way that we thought about the kinds of bodies and the kinds of people that could be anthropologists, and also how we trained and prepared people for the field, that those weren't actually instituted in our teaching practices or our pedagogies or the ways that we um, institute power structures. Um, and so um, it has also created a very interesting dialogue about what constitutes evidence, um, what are proper forms of justice. Um, one of the conversations has been about the politics of citations. So should we continue to cite um, authors um, who have become sort of canonical within the anthropological discipline, but might have, might come out that they were also perpetrators. Um, where do we, uh, where do we get our theory? Um, so do we continue to rely on sort of more old school forms of theory? Um, and should we instead be looking at, um, the more emergent forms of theory that are coming from the junior scholars who have been addressing these issues of violence for years, but they weren't being published in more mainstream journals. So things like that. There was a part in one of your pieces that you wrote that I copied this down to point it out and you just kind of pointed it out um, that Margaret, or sorry, Marilyn Strathern, is that how you say her name? Strathern, yeah. In 1987, you said, lamented the fact that rather than precipitate a radical transformation of the discipline, feminist anthropology was taken up as a niche subfield, one that was accommodated by other practitioners rather than applied to the discipline as a whole. That was in 1987, yeah. and this is 2018. And I mean, I'm assuming still lamenting <laughs> that exact same sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there was sort of this period where anthropology was supposed to have done a lot of reckoning in terms of its identity, in terms of making sure that it was um, participating in sort of an, an emancipatory, liberatory praxis. And then I think there was sort of this assumption that like, well, we did the, we did the job, we figured it out. Um, and we're just going to shelf that and move on. Um, but it always needs to be an ongoing continual practice. Um, and I think part of that was in addition to having feminist anthropology be seen as niche, it also meant that more applied forms of anthropology. So what we think of in terms of um, working in the field, 
as both an advocate and an ethnographer, which is something that I have worked on. Um, I'm part of a topical interest group of other scholars who study gender violence. And almost all of us fulfill sort of dual roles of being both sort of an advocate or a crisis manager um, and an ethnographer. And we see those as very much informing our scholarship and in preventing more extractive forms of research. So this assumption that you should you can just go into the field and people will inevitably want to work with you, especially if they're in vulnerable situations, um, feels very neo-imperialistic. Um, right, of course. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> from a feminist applied praxis, you are, you are also pro- potentially providing what I think about in terms of ethnographic care that you are, um, you are serving, you are serving the needs of the community while at the same time helping to build new forms of knowledge through your ethnographic work. But even that is seen as fringe. It's not seen as objective. It's not seen as um, laudatory in terms of the kinds of uh, ethnographic research that's getting funding, that's getting published. Um, and so even thinking about how we recenter all of this work that is really revolutionizing the way that we think about anthropology, but the people who hold the power are still the ones who are determining sort of which voices are heard and which kinds of scholarships are are seen as as valid and valuable. Yeah. I want to come back to what you said about um, a kind of clash over citations and who to cite and do we continue to cite um, a prominent scholars in the field who have been perpetrators. Um, and I think that this is something that like all academic fields need to contend with that includes the sciences and the humanities but i'm wondering where kind of uh anthropologists are now with that argument um i think it's tough because as people know when they are publishing work um if you're going through a peer review more often than not the uh, editors who are providing comments are going to identify what they see as gaps and so for authors and scholars who are seen as sort of canonical and have very much informed um, the discipline and are seen as um, sort of one of the key texts that you're supposed to cite if you're talking about subject X or subject Y, it is also dependent upon those editors sort of, are they going to flag that and say, you need to include this as a citation? Um, Do junior scholars who are still sort of getting their footing and really need that publication, especially if they're looking for tenure, are they going to feel comfortable pushing back and sort of laying out a claim for why they're not citing? Is that something that that journal will accept as valid? Um, so the extent to which they do believe that citations are political, um, I think it's something that has also very much been taken up in how we put together syllabi and curricula. So, you know, in an intro to anthropology class, do you teach the old school anthropologists that were um, sort of considered to be the, quote, handmaidens of colonialism. Um, and do you include ethnographies that were very critical to the development of anthropology, but we're still using terms like primitive and savage? Um, or do you teach more contemporary work? Um, do you do the work to potentially teach the critique of that work? So um, if you're teaching, so... Uh, 
Marcel Mauss's The Gift is often seen as a very important text um, where he talks about how, which is where the journal article title How came from. But during the debate that happened uh, this summer, a bunch of indigenous Maori New Zealand scholars, where the term how comes from, wrote an article talking about like why this was appropriation and how it's indigenous scholars who should be defining this term and should be using it. Um, and so even thinking about um, where you're drawing your research from, so that rebuttal was, again, published on a public blog rather than um, behind a paywall in a very famous journal. Um, and so it's, I think that there's a lot of triangulation and uh, I think because this is also new and we're still trying to figure it out, there hasn't been any consensus yet. Yeah. Um, I think this talking about um, how some of the, a lot of these conversations are happening uh, outside of journals and on Twitter and um, on, on blogs and stuff like that, where you don't have kind of that gatekeeping that can keep those criticisms out or silenced. Um, I think this is a good time to talk about um, uh, cyber feminism and um, kind of the, the, the promise of the internet for marginalized and silenced people um, versus kind of the peril of, of the internet as well. So um, yeah, go ahead and kind of talk about your, your thoughts on that. And you wrote a piece for us on that um, not too long ago called uh, Left to Their Own Devices, Gender, Cyber Violence, and the Internet. So Sure. Um, so I think cyber feminism was yet another sort of wave of, of feminism um, that I think was very much informed, again, by an anthropologist by the name of uh, Donna Haraway, who wrote a lot about the cyborg as a sort of subversive uh, sort of uh, techno technological character. Um, and there was this idea when the internet was sort of first coming into its own that um, with the recognition that there are so many institutions and power structures, sort of IRL, that are um, preventing women from speaking. So thinking about sort of publishing practices, um, whether or not women's voices are believed, um, even just sort of the economic precarity of publishing and things like that, this idea that um, the internet could potentially be this new space in which um, women's voices and ideas could be circulated, um, that there were opportunities for transnational feminism, for abilities for different feminist groups to connect with one another, share resources, share ideas, and not be constricted by um, some of the more material elements of the patriarchy that they lived in. Um, and I think to a certain extent, the internet has in many ways, um, enabled a profusion of feminist thought and ideas to circulate. Um, I mean, even just thinking about sort of the feminist blogosphere and the ways in which um, the break the silence movements um, within uh, rape advocacy groups did very much turn to the internet um, and did create opportunities for anonymity, but also to sort of spread, um, spread stories that weren't necessarily being told in traditional media. Um, but then sort of the, the drawback of this idea of a liberatory cyber feminist approach was that the web is still built by us. 
Um, it is still a yes. it is still a construct of our own making and is therefore informed by our own prejudices and ideas about the way that the world should operate. So um, there have been a lot of conversations lately about like AI and robots and the ways in which we sort of assume that if we are creating certain kinds of algorithms, those algorithms aren't going to be racist or sexist. But if it's humans that are creating the algorithms, then there that there is a um, ideological interface that is happening there. And so um, the Internet is is always going to be an extension and a continuation of the same sort of politics at play that don't occur on the Web. Yeah, it's um, we did an interview with Sophia Noble, who wrote Algorithms of Oppression and looked at um, mainly Google, but just how search engines kind of uh, reinforce and perpetuate uh, violence um, against marginalized communities, but especially um, black women. Mm -hmm. I I think still most people um, who don't immediately experience violence online understand the extent to which it happens. because I still, I've been writing about feminism as a woman on the internet for a few years now, and it, I still get it all of the time. And it's gotten so common that I don't mention it mm-hmm. <laughs> to most people, but like... Which there's something to be I, said for that process of normalization. Of course, yeah. And it's it's really sad. I, and I remember the first time that I had like a huge army of... Um, uh, you know, anti-feminists coming after me online, that it was really, it was very jarring the very first time because I had never experienced, I'd experienced violence from men before, but never in that kind of a space. Mm -hmm. And it created the space itself that it was happening on the internet allowed so many men to do it at Mm -hmm. once. That dogpiling (laughs) effect. Right. And, um, that the sheer number of men that were able to engage in that type of violence was really, um, jarring for me and really shocking. And, um, I think that that kind of speaks to the way that like, even in this space that by cyber feminists have been, has been, um, conceptualized to be a place where marginalized people can have a voice without power structures to silence Mm -hmm. them if we're gonna have an open space like that these other people are also participating (laughs) in that open space and so it's like this great thing allowed me to have these feminist opinions on a platform but then it also left the door open for a type of violence that I'd never experienced before to come in after it yeah well and I think um you know, I'm sure that when that happened, you didn't really know what modes of recourse were available to you because because yes. there is a sense that this is a type of violence that isn't as legitimate. Um, it's a lot harder to sort of qualify and quantify. Um, there is a sense of silencing that happens around it, um, which then I think only increases vulnerability. There is not a very strong sense of... Um, where you can get help. Um, So a lot of people have talked about how 
um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram don't have very good help modules for dealing with women who report these instances of abuse um, and don't actually get the support they need. Um, Our legal system is woefully underprepared to deal with this. Very few police officers um, or other sort of state agents understand the problem and are able to respond to it. Um, And then I think uh, to one of your other points, there, there is this sense of sort of saying, well, the internet is trash or the internet is wonderful. And it's always going to be (laughs) somewhere in between, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. garbage fire, but maybe sometimes those toxic fumes can be productive. Who can say, um, But I think part of what um, researchers are trying to figure out is as we're now studying this and trying to get a better sense of what this looks like in terms of the scale and scope is the questions of, um, you know, to what extent are these platforms um, preventing or enabling this kind of violence? So, like, how are these platforms constructed in such a way? Does that play a role? Um, How does anonymity play a role, both in terms of being able to speak, but then being able to perpetrate this form of violence? Um, Basic digital literacy. So um, the ways in which we sort of have to create our own forms of knowledge and sort of drawing on online support systems from other women who have experienced this. And then another question is also, is this violence different in some way than the offline violence? Or do we need to fold it into, again, this idea of a longer continuum of gender and sexual-based violence? And I think that um, we also know that uh, people of color experience it, queer and gender non-conforming. So like, there are a multitude of identities that are affected by this. And so how do we study and quantify it and understand it using the tools that we have from sort of offline violence? That kind of reminds me also of what's going on with the shitty men in media Mm -hmm. list right Mm -hmm. now Um, with Moira. It's Moira Donegal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She created um, the shitty men in media list, um, I guess about a year ago. Yeah, it was a year um, ago. Anniversary of the Me Too movement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, um, for those listening who might not know what this list was, um, it's basically a list that all women in any uh, field have for each other. We just haven't written it down before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so what she did was she made a, a public document where women in media could um, anonymously write down their um, write down the names and um, accusations against shitty men in media who had been perpetrating various levels of, of violence, mm-hmm. um, from sexual harassment all the way to rape. And, um, one of the men who was, um, uh, on that list has decided to sue her and he is trying to, um, unmask all of the women who anonymously wrote on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a lot of concern about how tech is going to respond to that request. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really scary position, I think, for women who were part of that because tech companies and tech platforms have not really been coming down on the side of of women who have 
you know, um, been experiencing violence online. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of sort of legal loopholes that enable tech companies or platforms to sort of circumvent responsibility. So especially for instances like revenge porn in which um, someone might have taken um, nude photos for a very particular um, partner and maybe those photos were without their consent shared online with the explicit intent of sort of shaming or harassing the person that was the subject of that photography. Um, If it's posted on sort of a third party account, that platform isn't responsible because they are not the ones who posted it initially. They're just the ones who are sort of sharing that content. And because it was posted anonymously, you can't sort of track it back to the initial poster. Um, And so there are all these ways in which, um, again, this sort of like digital architecture um, that we assume to be objective, the more we dig into it, the more we sort of realize that it, it is um, it is leading to sort of continued practices of oppression um, or absolution for perpetrators. I want to wrap up soon um, because we've been going for a while, but um, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about um, what's being done um, in feminist anthropology in regards to um, reproductive and sexual health. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's been, I think, reproductive and sexual health and then also advocacy on behalf of survivor communities. Um, I think that um, I was thinking about this especially just because with the Kavanaugh nomination and the um, the laws that are being put into place by states regarding abortion, uh, the ways in which um, people like uh, Paul Ryan have ta- have called upon women to sort of perform their role as women and therefore reproduce, um, the ways in which um, abstinence-only education has been scaled up with things like the global gag rule, um, prevention of comprehensive sexual education. We're seeing this very pronatalist move um, that is also very much informative of our immigration policies when we think about the ways in which we have women who are traveling to the U.S. explicitly to seek abortions and they have permission from medical providers, but we are actively preventing them from... um, from getting those abortions. Um, and so the ways in which we have um, what Raina Rapp refers to as sort of stratified reproduction. So what kinds of bodies are allowed to reproduce? What kinds of um, mothers are we um, supporting? Um, so these also these ideas of sort of like the welfare queen. Um, there's been a lot of research lately about um, um, the sort of, a precarious position that women find themselves in when they're pregnant. So two that um, come to mind is one is an ethnography by Carolyn Sufrin called Jail Jail Care, where she looks at um, women in um, San Francisco who um, become pregnant, um, might be drug users, um, are often precariously housed and may not have stable jobs. Um, the only ways that they're able to actually seek any kind of prenatal care, uh, is actually to, um, get themselves put in jail where they will be able to get that kind of prenatal care. 
Um, wow. But then, <laughs> yes, and then um, the ways in which that jail sort of is supposed to fill in the gaps of a um, social services. But then once the women do deliver, oftentimes they deliver in shackles. Um, oftentimes the state will come in and um, child protective services will take that child away. So creating a foster care system. Um, and then basically once the women have delivered, there's no sort of care or provision of services to ensure that they can sort of get back on their feet and potentially um, get that child again, especially if they had sort of set up a way that they, one of their kin could um, take care of their child until they were able to recover. Um, another is a ethnography by Kelly Knight called Addicted Pregnant Poor, where she looks at a similar uh, the similar ways in which um, um, women who are seeking some kind of social services because they want to recover from issues of addiction, they find themselves pregnant and they, they do genuinely want to get some kind of medical care. Um, but because of the way that our welfare system works, it penalizes and men case, in many cases also criminalizes very particular kinds of mothers um, and forms of pregnancy. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of really interesting anthropological work that is being done in the U.S. to really investigate these really pernicious forms of reproductive and sexual violence and the ways in which we construct ideas of deservingness of, of who is and should be a mother. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really interesting. That is something definitely that um, you should write an article for us on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe over my winter break after the semester has calmed down a bit. Yeah. Um, well, um, is there anything else that you just want to add before we before we close up? Um, no, I mean, I think that I just wanted to thank you. And I think that um, Lady Science is doing really incredible things. I mean, I think ideally what feminism is about is sort of sharing resources and ideas and trying to sort of build a community together. Um, and yeah, I, I'm always excited to see what the content that you create. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and thank you for, um, sharing your time with us and, um, talking with me about, um, your work in feminist anthropology. So, um, Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. If you want to learn more about what Emma is doing, give her a follow on Twitter at Emma Louise Bakke and check out her website, thegeekanthropologist.com. Thanks for listening and be sure that you subscribe to the Lady Science Podcast so that you don't miss the next episode in our series.